Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. It's a pretty well-known fact that most medical laboratories are shorthanded. So the question becomes, how can we get more people to go into these careers? My guest today is James Payne. James teaches a career and technical education high school program where students learn about lab careers. And not only that, they also learn valuable skills that they can use in these careers. Today, we're going to talk all about this program and we'll learn how James got to where he is today. All right, here's James Payne. Just to give things some context, so we don't, I want to start with your uh, educational path and your career path, and then we're going to get into the program that you're teaching that that is really amazing, and I want to talk about that a lot. But let, let's start with you. So now, initially, you studied marine biology, which yep. is okay. Now, this is slightly unusual, so let's get into this. How, how did you uh, how did you get interested in this field? I was a competition swimmer from high school through college. I actually swam D one. Um, at Stony Brook University, and also prior to that, I did two years at MCC, Monroe Community College, and so swimming and water was a big part of my life. I was also a scuba diver, um, so I got PADI certified early in college and eventually got to um, able to uh, go down to about 99 feet and, you know, went to the bottom of the St. Lawrence and found actually a bottle from the 1940s, like a, a Pepsi bottle. And so I just love scuba diving, love being in the water. I also got into biology. That was my main interest due to the uh, show Cosmos from not Neil deGrasse Tyson, but from Carl Sagan. And oh, sure. So, okay. Yeah, biology was a major interest of mine. And so I thought, well, I love the water. Uh, I love scuba diving. I like uh, biology, the kind of pulling it all together is marine biology. And since I was trying to decide on which school I was going to go to when it came to swimming D1, one of the options was Stony Brook University, which happens to be on Long Island, which happens to be next to the ocean. So that uh, seemed like a perfect fit for me. I kind of thought, well, maybe I might want to live on the bottom of the ocean, like have it uh, down the road in my career, maybe develop some sort of facility or chamber or something that you can take deep down so that you're down there all the time. Um, I know that in some shallow water situations, they're able to do that and people are able to scuba dive and not have to worry about the bends and things like that, like you mm -hmm. would um, if you were going from the surface and down. And so it just seemed like that might be what I wanted to do. And I really want like the idea with marine biology because the deep ocean, we have barely scoured the surface at all. So pretty much every time somebody goes down, they find something new that was never known to science. And in a lot of cases, it's kind of breaking the, the thoughts of what evolution could lead to. And so um, that was kind of cool. And we know more about like the surface of the moon than we know about deep ocean. So that was something that I, kind of drew me to that as a potential field. And did you, you actually start working in the marine biology field? So th that was actually where um, my last... Some, Probably last, uh, I think the fall of my senior year, I was talking to one of my professors and I was like, okay, well, the next steps is graduate school. And so if I'm going to go to be a PhD, I got to think about graduate school, but I'm not certain if this is what I want to do because the, you know, the, for most part, college classes, you don't get enough into it to know is what I'm going to be doing in my graduate degree going to be the same thing I'm doing now. And with competition swimming, it was hard to fit in the time to be able to fit in time to do research. Like I, I, if I did it again and I didn't do competition swimming, I probably would have done undergraduate research and been able to set that up. But with the nature of competing and being on scholarship, it just made that nearly impossible. So mm -hmm. I said to my professor, what am I going to do? You know, I, I don't want to jump feet first into it and then hate it and kind of get stuck a couple of years down the road. He said, no, I, I understand that. One of the things I've had my students do in the past that were in your similar situation was to have it so that you would do technician work. So you work as a technician in somebody's lab, you get a feel for it, see if it's something you wanted to do. Okay. So I started looking at places on Long Island you know, what is the uh, pay? What is the jobs? And I looked at the pay that you could get versus the pay I could get back home in Rochester, New York. 
And the cost of living in uh, New York City and Long Island is like three times as much as home, but the pay was almost the same. So I started looking at, oh. am I going to be eating ramen noodles for my uh, entire existence while I'm doing my <laughs> technician work? Or can I, you know, live on my own and not have, uh, not be nearly starving? And so that was kind of where I was. And uh-huh. so I ended up coming back home. Um, interestingly enough, while I was um, at Stony Brook, I needed to fit in like one extra science class. And I had kind of at that point actively avoided the human body and genetics and I ended up uh, taking a course in molecular techniques. So that's where I kind of learned a lot of the genetic stuff and biotech skills. And um, that was what I ended up going into research at the U of R, University of Rochester, doing those couple of skills that I learned in that course. So I ended up joining um, Howard Federoff's lab at the University of Rochester. And we were studying the blood of Alzheimer's patients, looking for biomarkers in the blood. So like RNA, DNA, protein, lipid, something that could potentially down the road be developed as a blood test so that instead of being a clinical symptoms, okay, you have X, Y, and Z symptoms, we think you have Alzheimer's, but you don't know for certain that they have it until they're past, and then you can you know dissect the brain and see the, the classic signs of, of Alzheimer's. And so if we could have it where we can, in the peripheral blood, determine that they have Alzheimer's, that would be great. You you certainly know that they have it, but also if we could find that maybe those molecules are in the blood in low concentrations early on in the disease and then ramp up over the course of it, that would be even better because now you might be able to catch it early. So I was in his lab doing the the actual lab bench work um, for him. I was enjoying that, but I also started to realize that if I wanted to eventually go to graduate school, I saw what the PhDs in my department, they often were writing grants, writing papers. They weren't really around their families that much. They were doing a lot of late nights. Um, some of them even had like their kids come in and play on the floor and wow. while, while they're, they're writing grants. And it's like, I don't know if I want to do that because I, mm-hmm. at that point I was young enough. I wasn't even close to having kids. But I looked at do, uh, if my kid has a baseball game or a football game or a play or whatever, could I go to that? Well, I might not be able to if I'm writing grants or that sort of thing. And so I started to go, oh, I don't know if I, what I want to do now. And I'm kind of I'm in a stuck situation. And uh, my boss suggested, well, maybe you want to start thinking about teaching because I was basically the lead person in my lab that would teach people how to do Western blots, PCR, pretty much any of the skill sets that I was, I was my um, primarily doing, you know, uh, blood extraction for, for leukocytes, that sort of stuff. And so since I was already teaching our, any of our graduate students or postdocs or even technicians, how to do those skills. So you're already good at doing that. Maybe that's your thing. So we'll look into it. And uh, actually also at that time, uh, Howard left to be the head of Georgetown Medical Center. And uh, so I had to kind of make a decision. Was I going to go with my direct supervisor to Georgetown, stay here, figure out a new lab? And I ended up moving to uh, Dr. Elizabeth Grayhex's lab. And she was doing a different um, set of research where they were using a genetic barcode system to study the uh, genome of Streptococcus mutans to determine the function of each gene. And actually, the, I was an author on that paper in 2015 in molecular oral biology, which is kind of cool. But uh, yeah, so that was my first actual author. Other ones I had contributed to the to the work, but uh, more got an acknowledgement. So it was kind of cool to actually be an author on the, on that paper. Basically, once I left Howard's lab and was working in Beth's lab, I was um, also going to the University of Rochester's Warner School for Education to get my teaching degree for science, 7 through 12 science. Now, the the teaching thing, you had that suggested to you. Was this something that you had been interested in prior to that, or was that the first like you, that you thought of it? Um, yeah, so that was something that... It was kind of like, yeah, maybe I was originally very focused on wanting to be a researcher. And so it was not something that I immediately gravitated to. 
Uh, actually, my coach in college told me he was a, a teacher. He said, don't go into teaching. So it was something that I uh, kind of just, it was in the background. But uh-huh. after my boss suggested, I started to think, well, I love the science. I'm very good at helping people understand complex topics. I think of uh, myself in the vein, uh, certainly not to the same level, but in the vein of a Carl Sager and Neil deGrasse Tyson in that I can speak and understand what a high-level researcher is writing or saying and bring it down to a person that doesn't have that base of knowledge and find ways to reword, make analogies, explain it to them in a way that they can understand. And I think that very few, that's a rare trait in most of academia that they can make that translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of my professors throughout the number of years would explain it one way. And if you didn't get it, they had a hard time coming up with that alternative way to explain it. And so that's a skill set that I have. And so I said, okay, well, maybe that, that's where I'm supposed to go. And actually, I uh, you know went through um, my student teaching, and I failed my first placement. Wait, wait you failed? Why did you fail? Because I was I didn't really know how to teach. I knew the the content, but the relating to the students, trying to find a way to explain it, interacting with high school students. I'm, at that point, I was I don't know twenty five or so. Okay. Um, didn't really know how to do that part, and. Um, was like, okay, well, maybe this is not what I'm supposed to do. Um, and one of our program advisors, Orlando Marrero, who uh, was a you know teacher at one of the local schools, kind of told me, no, 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 you can do this. You're good. We just need to work on some small things. And he, you know, kind of pulled me off the edge there and got back to it and actually did very, very well in my next two placements. You know, nowadays, you know, for the last seven years of my full-time teaching, I get, you know, the top level marks for all of my performance appraisals. So I was able to kind of turn that whole thing around after I kind of learned how to teach. Uh, that That's the toughest part, I think, for a lot of people when it comes to teaching, especially initially, you know the content, but it's almost more important for you to find a way to uh, connect with the students especially in the high school, middle school level, than the content part. So you have to get them to want to work with you, find you interesting, and have that personal connection, and then you can teach them the content. Okay, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I would imagine that that varies from student to student, right? Yeah, you got to find that that individual thing. I mean, sometimes you can kind of at least make some initial assumptions in terms of how to connect with them. But then slowly over time, just like any friendship, any relationship you have in your life, you may have some initial thoughts of it, but eventually it's going to be a very individual relationship. And that may end up being very individualized in terms of how you interact with them. So, so far you're, you're finding out maybe some things that you, you don't want to do as a career. And, but at the same time, you're collecting these skills along the way yep. and you're, and you're, you're always learning something from these situations, even if they, and you know, turn out poorly. And and now you found teaching, which is something yes. that it sounds like that you enjoy doing. Yes. Yeah. I, I uh, tell us a, I don't, I don't know if it's a quote or just a saying I say to my students that you learn almost nothing from success but you can learn everything from failure if you're paying attention. And so I've actively tried to over the years, if something didn't work out, what could I have done differently? What can I learn from it? And that even gets into, you know, I substitute taught for two years between graduating and getting this position that I'm in now. And, you know, a lot of it was daily subbing. So that was being thrown to the wolves. You know, you, if you have a lesson plan, it's usually pretty minimal, and I've got to try to find a way to get these kids to listen to me, um, do what they're supposed to do. Maybe if I'm in the right classroom, I might be able to actually teach part of the lesson or explain things like that. And so uh, that process helped me kind of head in the right direction that, unfortunately, student teaching, by the way, the nature of it just doesn't do as well as the real thing. 
And I even got a chance to do some long-term subs. So I started to be my classroom, not just daily sub. Mm-hmm. And then, like I said, the position I'm in now, Omoko opened up. And was it always, you always wanted to teach high school or were there other age, like age ranges you were interested in? So that's actually um, kind of along with the uh, subbing I did. I did one long-term sub for about five weeks in a sixth grade science classroom. And I actually really enjoyed that. At sixth grade, the kids across the board still have that curiosity. They still have the wonder left in them. And so even something that I consider small is fascinating to them. And I can bring them along and understanding um, what's going on. And it's amazing how far you can take them if you can just get them engaged in it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I enjoyed that. I actually ended up getting additionally certified, not just seven through 12, but down to fifth grade, thinking that that might be where I go because I didn't know that this program that I now have was even thought of. Uh, so it was okay, where are my options? And so I was thinking that, but generally I like the content that I can teach in high school, especially once I get into like 11th and 12th grade. And that's where I am now. Cause I like the, I can really delve into something where most, at least in New York state, I'm assuming across the country, most like bio high school biology classes are a hundred miles long and less than an inch deep in terms of content. And most things are at least a couple inches down before they get really interesting. Mm -hmm. So with 11th and 12th graders, you don't have to cover every single thing that's out there. You can take the time to go deeper and get a chance to explore the really cool things that are in that section of science. Let's get into this program that you're teaching now, because First of all, this is amazing, and I want to really dig into it. But let's, if we could, kind of define a couple of terms, I guess, first. So this is a a Board of Cooperative Educational Services School, or I think you called it BOCES? BOCES, yeah. BOCES, okay. What what does that mean? So in New York State, um, which is different than other states, but New York State, what they do is outside of New York City, they have these board of cooperative educational services. And what it is, is they will take a bunch of districts in a certain section of the state and they'll decide to work together. So that's the board of cooperative educational services. And so there's oh, okay. a bunch of both. I can't remember the number um, all across the, the state. I want to say it's something like 30 and usually it's somewhere between a few districts to I think one fairly close to me, I want to say is 15 districts because they're real small rural districts, but it allows them to pool their resources and be able to offer services that they couldn't afford on their own. Or it'd be, it would be very cost prohibitive to offer it in any kind of large scale um, way. So for example, our auto tech program, if we have at my school, imagine a normal high school, just being able to afford the lifts and all the tools to to repair cars, not really cost effective, but if you had 15 districts paying for those lifts over time, that's something you could afford to do. Okay. That, that, all right. That makes sense. So it's these, all these schools kind of banding together and, and, uh, yeah collaborating okay they don't have the resources of a city like new york city or buffalo uh city of rochester syracuse they have the the power of a city you know and monroe county the western side of monroe county where my uh, uh boces is there's nine districts that are pulling their um resource together that's only half the county um so to be, for them to individually afford, especially some of the very small ones that have graduating classes. I think the smallest one has a graduating class of like 50. So that's just really hard to be able to afford those sort of things for the students. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Now, the particular program that you teach, this is part of the career and technical education, right? Yes. A pretty broad number of programs within that. Yeah. Yep. So current technical education used to be called vocational education. And so it was supposed to be a way for students to gain skills in a trade that they could then work. College may be a part of it, but it was more focused on just the the skills. And so a lot of it was 
more of an apprenticeship model. It slowly moved more to an educational model, but a lot of it was, you know, watch me do this, you do this. Watch me do this, you do this. And over time, it's changed into a much deeper educational experience for students. And so students are not just learning the skills, but we're teaching them personal skills so that they understand how to be a better person, be more professional, that sort of thing. Workplace skills like integrity, working with supervisor, things like that. Obviously, those technical skills, but then we get into teaching them literacy. So they're learning how to read, write, speak, listen. They're learning math. They're learning science. They can even get their English 12 through us and get, science, like I said, the science or math credit through us. So it's gotten much more of an educational experience than it always was. But the one downside is the stigma is that it still is that vocational. You're only training for the auto tech or the carpenter or the cosmetologist. It's, you're not mm -hmm. doing anything more than that. And there's so much more that you could do with that. And I'm actually working with my school to develop a set of career pathways for each one of our programs so that parents, students, counselors, administrators, whoever can see not only that, uh, like our machining program trains you to be a machinist, but it also would really well prepare you to be a mechanical engineer or a mechatronics engineer. There's a whole long list of ones that I helped him look at. And I actually have, it's part of a career tool where if you click on the title mechanical engineer, it'll pull up a whole career website that describes everything about that career. Same thing with the machinist or any of the other careers that we have on there. And so it, like, it creates a nice visual for people to see. Mm -hmm. And also has career videos for each one of those careers so that students could see it a little bit um, like with their sitting with their counselor. Um, so career and technical education has become so much more than it was. And that's where my program is on that kind of cutting edge of new types of programs that are still career and tech ed, but are providing students with the employable skills that they can use now and the content knowledge that they could use in college. All right, so did you start this program yourself or did it exist and you took it over? Um, kind of started it myself. The reason I say that is it was a posted job. Okay. Um, it was something that my understanding is before I came for several years, the local medical labs were looking for a kind of medical lab assistant, maybe phlebotomy program that they could have students in high school go through and then come to them. It took a number of years to kind of get it off the ground. And then they posted the job. I actually applied for that, uh, the job that I'm in now in a science consultant teacher where I would help teach science to the other programs that are at my school. And I uh, lost out to a uh, astrophysicist who discovered a planet. I still work with him today, but uh, hey. Oh, wow. <laughs> can't uh, beat that uh, kind of credentials. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me the story of how you got started in, in this program because it's it's pretty wild. So like I said, it was, it was advertised in July 2011, and I didn't start till late August 2011, which is about two weeks before school started. And I was like, okay, what do you want me to do? What, are, what are, What's the standards? What are I... A, and my, my goal and my administration at the time really didn't know what they were looking for. And so they just kind of, you're the expert goal. I'm like, okay, I've got nothing. Okay. We'll, we'll just go back to my roots with biotech and doing research. And at least that gives me a starting of a lab. And so mm -hmm. I ordered a bunch of stuff. And by the time the school started, almost none of it had showed up because it was all in back order. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. And so what would happen is every couple of days I get a new piece of equipment or something like that. And I had to figure out what am I going to teach these kids today with what I got yesterday? And so it was a lot of me creating on the fly each day what I was going to do because I didn't ever knew what I had. And so I actually developed a whole series of labs where I'm using Kool-Aid or uh, food coloring and water. Um, oil, and just trying to find different ways to work with it. Pond water from one of our local uh, ponds. And I got microscopes, things like that. And I still use those labs today. 
The reason being, if uh, you mess it up, guess what? You can make more of it and just do it again. It's, you know, mm, I can have okay. a whole container of Kool-Aid. You're only going to use 10 grams at a time. Keep doing it. And so and I can teach things like being able to have students learn how to do a serial dilution and how to remove the supernatant off the top of a pellet using Kool-Aid. So they just make up a super concentrated Kool-Aid solution, and then they're going to do the dilution, you know, doing a one to two dilution um, all the way down. And then they um, put those microcentrifuge tubes in our microcentrifuge, spin them down. They'll see the little white pellets, and then the pellets get smaller and smaller, obviously, as you do dilution. And then they have to suck the supernatant off of the uh, pellet. And then they have to reconstitute the pellet with some water. And that simulates that whole process of how to purify you know, a DNA um, sample like you would, but just doing it with Kool-Aid. Oh, or sure. how, how to take a liquid on top of another liquid like you're doing a phenol extraction. You can do that with uh, oil and water. And so what I have them do is they take the oil, add some food coloring to it, mix it up with a vortexer. And so it kind of holds the color a little bit, but obviously oil and the food coloring don't like each other. And so then what will happen is when they add it on top of the water and they might, uh, they use the vortex around their little microcentrifuge tube, the food coloring jumps into the water and the oil is now back to, you know, it's normal yellow color. And then they have to work on using their micropetters to suck up just the oil and have it in their tube with no food coloring. If they got any food coloring in, the, in their oil at the end, it's contaminated. So it gives them a chance to build that skill set. So like when I graduated from, from college at Stony Brook, I went to my first lab, uh, Fedorov's lab, and I started using micropetters thinking, oh, I know how to do this. I, I did that fine in, in class. And about a weekend, my boss said, stop, looks at what I'm doing, says, no, you're doing that wrong. You're going to second stop. And that's one of those failure points. But now with my students in three, in the first three weeks of them ever touching anything really scientific, they don't make that mistake in, at all. They're perfect in how they use the microcutters. Um, they're uh, very quickly. They build the skill sets with our binocular microscopes where they can do wet mounts. They can view bacteria, you know, stain and view bacteria. We get into them using spectrophotometers. They get into um, using pH meters, doing titrations, making their own soap even when I teach a little organic chemistry for the saponification reaction. So this is all stuff. I mean, I, I learned most of that in college, and you're doing this in, in high school. Yes. So they've already got a head start there. Um, and it sounds like a, a lot of these things, you're, you're like simulating the type of work that they would do in a medical lab or in a research lab or, or things like that. So they're, like you said, they're building those skills. Well, then what ends up happening is that once they, that's like my first unit is just all it's heavy skills, not a ton of content. We do a little bit of like uh, laboratory math to make solutions, you know, C1 V1 and mm. ratios and molar solutions, that sort of thing. But mostly it's focused on just the safety and then how to do a whole bunch of skills. Um, but then when we get farther into the, the course, they're making blood slides, they're doing ELISAs, they're doing PCR, they're doing restriction digestion, they're doing bacterial transformation, they're doing plating testing, biochemical and slide tests for identifying bacteria. So th those basic skill sets that they learned in that first unit, then it becomes applied when they get deeper into the, the course. That's the reason I do all those skills. It builds their confidence. It gets them comfortable so that when we go to do PCR, PCR is just applied pipetting. There's really, in terms of the skill that's going to cause you to get a, a result, it's all pipetting. So if you can pipette well, you can do PCR well. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, James Payne. We'll be right back. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to James Payne on the People of Pathology podcast. 
so I want to go through some of because you do sort of a it's like a tour of the lab, really, all the different lab areas that your students learn. So I want to kind of go through some of these and and take a take a look at how you you know your again high school students are learning these skills. So I know phlebotomy is kind of a major focus in this mm-hmm. program. So let's talk about that one first. Okay, so phlebotomy we do is our second unit. Um, second major skill unit. There's a couple like, you know, communication, that sort of stuff, but, and a little bit of uh, exploring the careers, but our second major skill unit is phlebotomy. So the students have these um, phlebotomy training arms where they have tubing that runs through them, allows them to, with red liquid, obviously. And if they uh, use their needle properly, they put on their tube and they'll get the red liquid in the tube. If they don't get it properly in that tube, they have to try to readjust their needle, just like you would do in a real arm. And so that gets them so that they build a muscle memory in their hands. So when they go to do the real thing, it's, that part's not the hard part. When I learned phlebotomy, it was the third day of class. I'm drawing blood on my, co- on my classmates. So it was the, I know I don't know what I'm doing. You know what? I don't know what I'm doing, but can you stick your arm out anyway and let me stick you with a needle? Right. And so my kids build that confidence. I mean, right now we've only been going, I think, six weeks uh, with phlebotomy so far. And the uh, some of my students have 65 draws on the the fake arm because they're just banging through, getting getting that technique down. And Mm -hmm. so they have to build that skill set. So it becomes automatic. They learn the theory of, you know, the, uh, why the tubes are, uh, why you order a draw, what the tubes are in them, the needles, all that sort of stuff. They learn the circulatory system, how the heart functions. They get into infection control. They'll learn venipuncture complications, all part of that one unit. So that by the time they're done, they got a pretty decent understanding of the basics of routine phlebotomy. Um, and then they'll do another unit where we'll get into more special collections. So that'll get into finger sticks, hand veins. Um, they will get a chance to get a much deeper understanding when you're talking about like cryoglutins and things of that, that are more specialized testing. And they'll uh, get some more things where we'll get into some of like the legal parts of phlebotomy and some of like the quality phlebotomy, getting into point of care testing, things like that. So at the, at the end of the first year, They'll actually sit for certification in phlebotomy. And to do the, uh, sit for that certification, they actually have to spend 40 hours out at one of our local medical labs drawing blood on real patients for real samples. And it's an absolutely amazing experience. We, was, last year was the first year we were able to pull it all off. We sent out four students in May. All four had well over 100 draws that were successful and well over a 90% success rate for high school students, one of them being a junior in high school. Okay. And I think something like for the certification, you need like, what is it, like 30 sticks or something like that, isn't it? So for the National Health Career Association, it's 30 sticks. Uh, we decided because we're also looking to do the American Medical Technologist Certified Medical Lab Assistant Certification. That requires 120 hours and to make 120 hours more manageable so that we weren't having it so that students were, you know, constantly out of the classroom. We said, you know, we check with them, could we do phlebotomy for part of it? And that's what we're doing. So we're kind of splitting up the, the, 80, the 120 hours to 40 hours of phlebotomy and 80 hours in the medical labs doing um, medical lab assistant work, whether it's clerical or uh, aliquoting that sort of specimen processing stuff. That's really impressive. Uh, what are some of the other lab areas that you, that you cover? Like I said, in the first year we do that basic lab skills. So that kind of gives you a little bit of like chemistry that they get into. So I've actually had students work in chemical labs. Um, but then after the phlebotomy unit, we get into hematology. So they'll um, stain blood slides and um, be able to identify the different blood smears, basically simulating a uh, doing a manual diff. Obviously, it's not a true like CBC with manual diff. I used to have a uh, CBC analyzer, but it was like $500 to do like two weeks worth of class. And at, at that time, it was like that would have been like a quarter of my budget. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, um, yeah, we can talk about doing it and just not have to have the analyzer. And so I ended up um, getting rid of that, but we still do the blood smears. 
And we've actually had it where um, students have been able to see that I was about to get sick before I got sick because they saw activated lymphocytes. And we get into having them do like hematocrit. So we have a hematocrit centrifuge um, so they can actually see the hematocrit versus getting it as a result out of an analyzer. Um, so that helps with their understanding of the what actually hematocrit is and mm-hmm. makes it a little more fun. Something is more visual. I try to have, if I can do it, the old-fashioned way, let's say, for another example, titration. Titrations, most people don't do manually with the burette and stopcock and trying to get that you know, down to the single or a very light pink color. They have an auto titrator. They put it at the sample and they press a button. And it tells them what the, the concentration is. But having to go through that old-fashioned manual process makes it so that they have a better understanding of what is actually going on. Um, then we'll get into immunology and we dive much deeper. So instead of talking about the five major um, white blood cells, we'll get into the um, different immunoglobulins. We get into like the not just that there's lymphocytes, but the B lymphocytes versus T lymphocytes. Uh, they get into dendritic cells, all those sorts of things. One way I teach it as part of the program is I actually have a um, what's called a deck building uh, game. So it's basically a bunch of cards. And the students, the part of the game is where they are bacteria and they're trying to build up uh, toxins, traits, defenses, uh, uh, so that they can try to destroy some of the body tracts. And then automatically immune system cards will come. So every time the players turn us up, they have the immune system card come and attack them. And so it could be a eosinophil or a natural killer cell or lymphocyte helper T cell, whatever. The cool part is not only do they get to see the interaction of how it, things go, happen, like I've actually had students on tests imagine the um, IgM antibody sticking their two bacteria together and then having, going, okay, yeah, I know what the IgM antibody does and to be able to answer the question correctly. But um, actually, on every single one of the cards, whether it's stuff about the bacteria, about the traits, the toxins, or the immune system, each one of them's got a little description of what that bacteria or trait or toxin or, or white blood cell does. And so I actually have it. So while we're playing it in class, I have a graphic organizer where they're writing down their uh, what each one of those traits, toxins, white blood cells, whatever is doing. And so it's becoming an interactive way to learn about immunology instead of being just something we talk about. And that's uh, game pathogenesis has been really helpful in helping them make it more real. And on top of that, we do some ELISAs um, as a uh, lab skill for that. This is amazing. Okay, so now you said already, when your students, I guess even before they graduate, they're eligible for phlebotomy and medical lab assistant certifications. Yep. Okay, now these are high school juniors and seniors, and they come out of high school with, these two marketable skills with these two certifications. Mm-hmm. I really want to stress this because this is, this is, I think this is really important. Do you feel like exposure to lab careers at an early age, you know, cause everybody talks about how there's a shortage of lab staff. Do you feel like something like this, like ex- exposing kids to lab careers at this early age in high school would help with something like that? Oh, absolutely. I I think that it ends up being a confidence builder because a lot of times the way that most kids find out about what they're going to do in college is very often something where it's either I know somebody directly in my life. So like a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer or or something like that, Mm -hmm. or I uh, went to my counselor and they read off a bunch of titles of careers and maybe something sounded interesting or I looked on a, a catalog in my local college's, you know, possible majors, and I just pick one. A lot of students go into college saying that I'll figure it out when I get there. And the problem with that is you may be in the wrong college if you decide that you wanted to go into marine biology, for example, and you're in um, the middle of nowhere where there's not a single ocean anywhere near you, you're not going to do marine biology there. And so getting a chance to explore careers in a hands-on sense, I think is really huge because you not only know this is something I might want to do, but I also know it's something I'm good at. So there are people out there that are really have it 
up in their head. They they understand the material, but if you actually do something with it, that's not in a sterile environment like you have in an educational setting, it makes it so that they are less likely to understand it. And, you know, my students get a chance to interact with people from all over the world. Um, We've had uh, some people that are some of the top in our industry. I mean, the the second day of class for my juniors this year, um, Hassan Aziz, who's the ASCLS current president, Mm-hmm. spoke to my students about his career pathway and how this program is an excellent way for them to explore the career. And it's something that, you know, I believe that we're essentially creating what I'm calling the minor leagues of the medical lab. And that uh, we are, have a crisis in terms of employment. And if we filled the, what I'm calling the minor leagues, so that would be like your phlebotomists, your medical lab assistants, your even sterile processing techs, those entry-level positions that you had those filled with students who went through a program like mine, where they know some more advanced skills, they know a little bit more about the uh, the career options, they've learned content at a freshman, sophomore, maybe in some cases a junior level um, content knowledge, that you'll have some of them move up to the majors and want to go for a technician, scientist, pathologist assistant, cytotech, histotech, maybe even a you know pathologist. But they they won't know about any of those existing if they weren't playing the game. And so having a good chance to explore those careers, build some skill sets, and just like a minor league, not every player in the minor league goes up to the majors. Some of them stay 20 years in the minors, but they're consistent enough that your team keeps them on the team. And just like that, that's your phlebotomist, your lab assistant, that if you need that blood draw done and it's a tough stick, you send that phlebotomist in and they're going to get that draw no matter what. And every team needs that. If we had that large base that has a ton of people in it, because right now, I mean, just looking at my local area, as of last Christmas, Christmas 2021, there are 52 phlebotomist openings just in my county. If we had wow. all those filled, then you would have a lot more people knowing about the career, a lot more people with the potential to go on to fill our current 25 MLT openings, or maybe the 105 MLS openings, and have it so that those careers are being filled and we don't have that shortage, but you need to build that really wide base. Mm-hmm. Right now. Okay. L- like we said, now your, your students, so they've got these skills and you can, I mean, you can make a cr- career as a phlebotomist, as a med- medical laboratory assistant, you know, you can do that. But like you said, some of your students go on to further education. And I feel like with, you know, already having these skills, they they would have an advantage in, say, an MLS program, a histotech program, PA program, things like that. Absolutely. As an example, I actually had a meeting with the Erie Community College uh, Clinical Lab Technician uh, Program Director today, and we were talking about all the skills that my students have. And she's actually going to be having one of my students um, is going to get into her program because of my recommendation and obviously her great work, but she looks at the skill sets that my students have, and she's looking at Ava being a work-study person that can help her with making plates and um, setting up experiments, those sort of things, teaching phlebotomy or uh, being that assistant when they do the phlebotomy part, Um, getting into maybe doing some additional work with her because she's so much farther advanced you know, we're looking at, I think, in her second year for microbiology, because like I said, we get deep into microbiology, uh, much farther past the gram stain. But one of the skill sets that's in the the course description is learning how to perform a gram stain. Ava learned that in her sixth week in class. She learned how to do a gram stain. So she could do it in her eyes closed now. Yeah, my students usually are kind of bored their first year because they're so much farther along than their classmates especially once you get into the actual lab skills past kind of the initial gen ed courses. And so that's something that you, uh, that they're just that much farther along. 
And so courses that could be hard are much easier. You know, they're 50, 75% of the way through their college course in terms of knowledge already. And so that's just adding a little bit left. They don't have to totally have build the house from the ground up every uh, every semester. They already have parts of the houses built and it's just putting on the sheeting or adding the roof. And that's got to continue the confidence builder thing that you were, you were talking about earlier because oh, they, they're yeah, already absolutely. advanced. And we also do about a thousand prefix roots and suffix of medical terminology. So every medical and biological word that they could run into, they already know. I, I tell them that uh, physics has uh, is basically math. So if you don't understand math, physics is hard. And the same thing with biology. Biology, if you don't understand vocabulary, vocab- uh, biology becomes hard. And so if you understand the secret code, you mm-hmm. just the, the words tell you what they mean if you understand the code. If you don't understand the code, it's really hard. It's a lot of memorization versus just being told what it is. You know, and, and another aspect of this, I mean, you're over the years, you've built relationships with the local laboratories and schools as well, and you to sort of help your students get opportunities. Yep. What was that like at the beginning, as as far as it, I guess what? The, the labs specifically, like, what was it like to go, okay, I've got these high school students and I'd like to bring them in to shadow in your lab or to actually work in your lab? How did that, how did that go? So initially there was interest, but not the, at a level that I was able to convince the right people to be able to make it happen. So it took a while. Um, you know, it was something that one, I wasn't pers- uh, person person coming out of the industry that would have helped immensely if I was already an MLS or something like that Mm, Um, instead of being a marine biology person who has doesn't even really understand what is all the lingo in the industry and so I had to kind of learn that part but um, slowly I started to make connections like with our local um, community college medical lab technician program and uh, so they got some connections there and kind of slowly worked my way, finding the right person. One of uh, the, what was, I think, the pre-analytical manager at um, University of Rochester, when I first met her, she's now the uh, vice chair of administration for the department. And when I first met her, she loved what we were doing, but it was just hard to get to the high enough level that could make things happen that... Uh, were challenging. And now that she is all the way up there, she is able to, I think it was probably seven years in, she was like, okay, let's start making this happen. Now we've been talking about it for a long time. We want to make it happen. And actually to give you a quote from her that she put in when we were, um, the program was reapproved last year, said the first student to complete the clinical rotation was extremely competent and exceeded our expectations. We were so impressed that our phlebotomy department is considering hiring them after graduation. We've also hired graduates from uh, the medical laboratory assisting program and have been very impressed with their competency. And that's the vice chair at U of R. Two other quotes I wanted to share because I just thought that they were pretty powerful. Um, this was another person from Catholic Health Laboratories in Buffalo. So I've kind of expanded my reach just past my school. And uh, as a manager, uh, I would not hesitate to hire anyone who has completed the program put forth by Wamoko Laboratory Assisting and Phlebotomy Program. The clinical laboratory industry needs more programs like this one to champion the field and provide high quality, educated and motivational workforce to serve their our patients. And last one um, and, uh, is the from our one of our professors at Monroe Community College. So the medical laboratory assisting and phlebotomy program gives the students the freedom, flexibility, and potential to choose the technician pathway, prepare for a scientist or technology position, or aim even longer-term career goal. In my opinion, this program is the dazzling crown jewel of our educational system. If my 15-year-old were in the school district and interested in biomedicine, I would be delighted to see him enroll when eligible. So we've taken it from... Not real, me not knowing very much, and then trying to get people to want to interact with my students to becoming a leader in my state and starting to be more and more recognized as a excellent way to ensure that 
our 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 medical lab industry, at least locally, and to a certain extent regionally, is being well supported by high quality students um, that are ready to work and ready to go to college. That's so cool. Like I, I can think, you know, when I was in high school, I, this would have been, I would have loved a program like this. Do you happen to know, I mean, are there programs like this in other, other parts of the country? There are other medical lab assisting programs and there are other phlebotomy programs. Um, I don't know if they're exactly doing it how I've been doing it. Like I said, I had created it independently in terms of, I didn't really have any direct direction from a state standard or that sort of thing when I was developing it. If they were similar, it would be a co-evolution than a um, a directed um, process. But uh, it's something that I feel where I am now that it could be easily replicated in another place. You know, I've done essentially what I've done with my students where I learned through mistakes and things that I did when I was in research, why you do the things that you do. And the same thing is true here. I can explain how to, to shortcut the way, not take 10 years, do it in maybe a few years and have a high quality program that is regularly producing students going out to industry and academia. So if there's anybody listening that after hearing this, they like this idea, they want to start something like this, it, you know, as far as for you, like, like you said, you know, having it take less than 10 years, like it took for you, what, what are some ways maybe that they could kind of circumvent the, in, like, what were the biggest challenges you had that they could sort of circumvent? Yeah, I'm actually going to be speaking at the Clinical Laboratory Educators Conference in a 60-minute session, um, mm-hmm. doing a, a virtual presentation um, where I'll get more in-depth into all of this and kind of explain more in-depth. But some of the things that you definitely need to do is look into how your state regulates, guides, current technical education programs and see if there's anything related to medical laboratory. In my state, there happened to be some guidance to how to do a medical lab program. It was a little more convoluted, um, but it's something that you want to check first because if your state already has a set plan of this is what you're supposed to do, you don't want to create a program that turns out that your states and go, nope, can't approve it. And then students can't get the advantages that they get for approval. Like for my state, um, you can't offer academic credit. So like the ability for my students to be able to get science credit as part of my program, they wouldn't be able to get. Um, and they also couldn't get what's called the technical endorsement, which allows my uh, students in my state to essentially get equivalent of like a regents with distinction, like a, a little uh, sticker you can add to your diploma, looks better on a college application and actually helps their school in like state rankings. It's equivalent to like an AP exam in terms of the, how many points you get uh, for it. Once you know just how you're going to be regulated, how that's going to work, you need to pull together industry and academia. That was my biggest mistake. I didn't have the connections to do that. I was so worried about just creating stuff for tomorrow. I wasn't thinking ahead to worrying about talking to somebody in industry or worrying about talking to somebody in academia. And so um, one of the big things that suffered from that was that I didn't have what's called work-based learning. So work-based learning is where you're having students shadowing. So going out to a local business and being able to watch uh, somebody do the work, ask questions, learn from them, we're not actually touching the, you know, whatever they're working on. And so that can be great for that kind of initial career exploration, um, getting an idea of what the sight, sound, smells are, that sort of thing that, you know, some people, um, I know you're a pathologist assistant. Mm-hmm. I know I've taken some students into an anatomic pathology lab and just the smell alone was something that they were like, yeah, I'm done. I, I'm about <laughs> to pass out. And yeah, you, it, pathology can sound super cool. I love that concept, but if you can't handle that smell, then it's kind of a deal breaker. And depending on how far along school until you figured that it was that was the problem, it could be an issue that uh, you down the wrong path. So the getting a chance to shadow can be huge. Um, And usually that's a short term thing and, you know, a couple of days for a couple of hours, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, But then you get into co-ops where you're actually getting a chance to do something, whether it is an unpaid co-op, which is a couple of weeks, you're doing some sort of work 
Uh, for example, when my students were going to U of R and drawing blood on real patients for real samples, that was an unpaid co-op. And so they uh, were doing something real, but because they were getting paid, you know, it has to be you know relatively short term. And uh, that'll be the same thing when we do our additional 80 hours at the medical lab assisting part. That would be on a paid co-op. Um, if the lab wants to pay the kids, that's fine. It just that's um, our labs. We're doing more of the training model. Then there's the paid co-op. And that's um, like we had a paid co-ops with Eastman Kodak. That's how several of my students became chemical technicians at Eastman Kodak, where they spent, I think, six weeks or six or eight weeks learning how to be chemical techs while getting paid. And all of them got hired immediately after. And two of them are still working there um, at Eastman Kodak, you know, two years later. So getting that work-based learning early is really key because that's something that really sells the program and gets more students interested in it. And will build those program credibility when you have lots of students going out, talking to their friends, I got to go in this medical lab. I got to see this thing. I got to uh, watch this uh, machine look at this blood smear. And I saw uh, leukemia on a patient. Those sort of things. Those are the, the stories that are going to build your program and make it so that students know if this is something they want to do. Um, trying to provide unique opportunities for students. So like, for example, I have one of my friends who is a pathologist assistant at U of R. She's going to be coming in and doing a, um, she takes some frozen sections, teach the kids how to turn them into slides and also talk about her career pathway. So that's something that you're not going to get often in your own high school classroom. Right. Uh, same thing. we got a histotech program and that's uh, across the state from us. It's coming all the way three hours to Omoko and is going to do paraffin embedding and teaching the kids how to do that. So uh, those unique experiences, you can provide them even field trips. I mean, my students, when they went to U of R on a field trip, were just floored looking at everything. Oh, my God, look at that thing doing plating, you know, the robot doing plating. Or uh, those are COVID samples that are being processed um, in that thing. And they got 384 or something like that uh, samples being processed all at once. They're just minds were blown seeing all of that those experiences and those opportunities that they wouldn't normally get in high school is really huge. Um, getting lots of guest speakers and visits so that students get more of a chance to interact with industry and academia and even having like industry mentors. So I have some people that my students are interested in the career. They want to explore a little more having somebody from industry working with them to help explain. So like, for example, my friend who's that pathologist assistant is actually helping set up a shadow with one of my students who is interested in becoming a pathologist assistant and uh, she'll, she'll shadow in her lab and get it. And she's been working with her and explaining the career pathway, that sort of thing. Then on the academia side, you want to get articulation agreements. So this can be something as simple as having a feed taken off or having priority registration where like the application gets moved to the top of the pile, but it could be, you know, upwards of having classes knocked out or in the case of Nazareth college, my students actually get a $2,500 a year scholarship for four years. If they go to the clinical lab science program and they had to have an 85 in their, um, I think their science classes, if I remember correctly. So having those opportunities again, helps build that program and helps it so that you have more students wanting to go on to college because they see that um, the advantage they get to come in there. Also trying to make it so that they feel like scientists. So doing experiments regularly, trying to have them in the lab as much as you can are ways to make it so that it's enjoyable. They're talking to their friends all the time. You know, every time that they get a chance to take a picture of something that they saw in the microscope or uh, something that uh, them uh, drawing blood on the fake arm, things like that are just huge for um, making it so that it's engaging and they want to want to continue on with the career. One of the things that is always tough, and this is any time in education, is making sure you get enough funding to run the program. When I first started the program, I had two thousand dollars total. And anyone who's worked in science knows that $2,000 goes like that. It was really hard to, to run, run the program. I mean, we had a lot of students that were waiting to use a microscope or waiting to use the incinerator so they get the bacteria off the inoculating loop, things like that. 
you know, now I'm up to about six grand. And it's actually decently comfortable. I mean, it depends on how many students I have that year, but um, I found ways to extend out my budget in terms of like pouring my own plates. We uh, buy bulk tips and then we uh, sterilize them ourselves. I'm not buying as much equipment. So the supply budget you know, can go a little farther. Um, finding ways to create essentially what other kits already have, uh, making your own solutions, that sort of thing, and help extend out um, funding for that. Um, you can also get donations of lab equipment from local labs when they're decommissioning a lab or, you know, we're getting all new pipettes. We don't want these ones anymore. Do you want them? That sort of thing. And uh, that can help it. So you're minimizing the waiting time of students. So they're not having it. So, okay, I'm waiting for 20 minutes to be able to look in the microscope. All of them will look in the microscope. You know, those sort of things can be great. Obviously, when you're first starting out, that's harder. But mm -hmm. if you are smart and just kind of buy the right things and you keep working your way towards it, or you might get a big grant, those sort of things can help. Um, and then also trying to promote outside of the traditional pathways. So, for example, doing this podcast I'm doing or trying to have it so that you're very active in meeting with people across the industry. I'm um, actively going out to labs and meeting with whole staffs, trying to get to know them so that they know us. Doing career fairs, maybe even doing things like summer camps, something like that, where you're trying to get the word out so it's not relying on a few gatekeepers. It, you're able to directly connect with the potential students. Like I said, I'll get into much more depth of all this sort of stuff when I do my CLIAC presentation. You know, yeah, those are those are great examples. It's great advice for other people who might want to start a program like this. And I, I, I appreciate you coming on and talking about this program, which is it's incredible. I hope you are proud of the work that you're doing. You know, a lot of people talk about the shortage of lab staff, and you are literally doing something to help solve the problem. So. I know everybody else in the lab community appreciates what you're doing. James Payne, thank you very much. Thank you. Like I said, I appreciate being able to be on the podcast and talk about this as a way to help address the the field. And people that are interested in helping, you know, it can be doing a program like mine, but at minimum, try to get out there in your local community get into career fairs, try to get into science classes or um, talking to your church or a community event. Um, I know ASCP does the career ambassadors program right. and yeah. that is one way that they actually provide you with resources to be able to do that. But if you're interested in trying to set up a program like mine, I'd be happy to help and uh, try to have it so that more students are coming out ready college and career ready for um, working in a lab. Great big thanks to James Payne. Here's a trailer from another episode that I think you'll enjoy, and then I'll be back with some final comments on this episode. Then later that year, I was attending my first national ASCLS meeting, and Dr. Gunsless was giving her first presentation right after she graduated. So she was talking about her internship experience um, or her residency experience as a DCLS resident. And she was talking about all these consults that she had because she got to round with the you know providers on the floor and how she had these huge impacts on patients she talked about this one case where the patient was in the icu and they were waiting for a pacemaker placement and the patient had a long-standing tracheotomy and they did a trach culture and it came back positive and they were going to delay the patient's pacemaker placement 10 days to give the patient IV antibiotics because of the positive trait culture. And the doctor looked at Dr. Gunsless and was just like, well, what do you think of this result? And she looked at the culture result and noticed that the type of bacteria that was there was just common skin flora. And when you have a long-standing trait, it can start developing its own biofilm. So it'll mimic your skin flora. So she's like, oh, this is just normal skin flora. It's not an actual infection. It's what's on this patient's skin. And they were able to stop the IV antibiotics and get that patient, his pacemaker placement and save them a 10 day inpatient stay for that. You can hear more from Catherine Golab in episode 61.
Okay, so I just can't get over this, and I know I said it several times during the interview, but I can't get over the fact that these are high school students that are learning about lab careers. They're learning lab skills, and they're earning certifications while still in high school that they can then go on to other careers in pathology and laboratory medicine. I think it's programs like these that are probably the best way to fill the huge staffing shortage that we have right now in all areas of the lab. So I really hope after he gives his talk at CLIAC that hopefully other programs like this will start becoming more common. James deserves a lot of credit for what he's doing. So again, thank you to him. You can find links to everything we talked about today in the show notes, and you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at People of Path, or you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others, and together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being, and you can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network if you'd like to check out some of the other interesting podcasts. Thank you very much for listening, and I will talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.